1: Well, hello, and welcome to Basic Folk. I'm your host, Cindy Howes, and you are listening to a podcast that features honest conversations with folk musicians. Very invasive, honest, intimate, face-to-face conversations, except not right now, during quarantine. I've been doing all these interviews remotely. But anyways, that's some behind-the-scenes information for you. I hope you're doing well. Things are getting interesting in our country or wherever you are. They're getting interesting all over the world. Um, I am still educating myself, listening, donating. Um, I'm planning a project on uh, Basic Folk that will hopefully help educate and inform Um, talking to a lot of different friends in radio and in the folk world about what we can do to try to make this a better world for everyone, no matter what your gender is, what your race is, what your orientation is, what your thought process is, except for Nazis. Nazis are not welcome. All right, on with the show today. Vermont native Pete Bernhard of the Devil Makes Three, was raised surrounded by art as all of the adults in his life were either visual or musical artists. While his friends were obsessing over Metallica and Megadeth like 12-year-old boys do, Pete was captivated by old blues musicians. He found common ground with Cooper McBean growing up, who loved the same music that Pete did and they ended up becoming lifelong friends and musical partners in The Devil Makes Three. Influenced by old blues and folk music along with the energy they felt at punk shows that they would attend as teens, the pair made it their mission to create a fun, energetic live show and their performances. The Devil Makes Three came together with Pete and Cooper moving to Santa Cruz, California and teaming up with Lucha Torino. They toured and became an established band in the Americana world, and for some reason in the jam band scene, they became huge. Pete and I talked about his draw and interest in darker subject matter, particularly drugs and the opioid crisis in his songs. We also talk about Brown Bird, a band from Rhode Island that was very close with Devil Makes Three until the death of frontman David Lamb a few years back. Since then, David's widow and bandmate Morgan Eve Swain has joined Devil Makes Three while Lucha takes a break from the road. And finally, we discuss on um, his new solo album Harmony Ascension Division feature songs about friends he had in his teens and 20s. The record features Pete playing quietly, which is unlike a Devil Makes Three album and more reminiscent of his style when he first started playing music at that age in his teens and 20s. Pete's thoughtful, generous, and kind during this interview. Hope you enjoy it. We're going to take a listen to a song from Pete's new solo album. This is called Land of Milk and Honey. Hear a clip of this and then we'll get to our conversation with Pete Bernhard on Basic Folk. On a Greyhound bus
0: Full of runaway girls Trying to find a way out in that western world And he's drunk Laughs and he boasts Driver throws him out now on the Oregon coast. It's the land of milk and the honey. Something bitters in that milk. Cut across that border like a
1: knife from
0: silk.
1: Pete Fernhardt, thank you so much for talking to me today.
0: No problem. Thanks for having me.
1: You were raised outside of Brattleboro, Vermont, in a very small rural town. Um, can you describe what kind of town it was and um, maybe what you liked about it, what you didn't like about it, and how did your town make you who you are today?
0: Um, yeah, it's a, it was a typical small town. I actually grew up in the country outside of Brattleboro, um, but Brattleboro was like the town, um, the big city, if you will. <laughs> uh, and yeah, I it was a really um, supportive community. I actually was thinking the other day about how Many great bands have come out of my tiny little town, and I'm amazed by it even today. Like younger bands who are there now, and um, bands that were that came out when, when I was a kid, and people I'm friends with. It was pretty amazing for being such a small place.
1: What's the name of the town?
0: Um, well, I'm from Marlboro, and Brattleboro is really the place where most of the bands came from. Most a lot of them weren't from there either, but it, it is it was sort of like the central meeting place, and so yeah, my friend, um. King Tough, uh, he, Kyle, mm. who I grew up with, he came, we went to high with the same high school. Um, his friend, Ruth Garbus is really great too. Uh, then, um, Tune Yards is Ruth's, uh, older sister, Meryl. And, uh, I was just kind of like, then there's, there's bands that are current. Um, there's a band right now called Dust Love, which is really great um I recorded a record with a band called the Detroni Brothers and who's like been around here for a while. And it's just a really great spot for for music for being such a small town. Obviously right now there's nowhere to play, but that's like everywhere so um <laughs> hopefully that won't go on forever. But yeah, so I mean that was the positive thing about it was I grew up with a lot of musicians and artists and the the only negative thing I think was yeah, the sort of lack of things to do. We would often, you know, like uh, pile in the car and go to Boston or go to New York to go see a show because that was sort of our closest real um, touring band experience, you know.
1: So when you were a kid, there was art all around you. Um, you said that everybody was either a visual artist or a musician. What kind of impression did that leave on you as a young person? Did you or do you find it easy to connect with art because you grew up with it?
0: I think so, yeah. And also, it was kind of like when I was a kid, everyone that I looked up to was either a visual artist or a musician in my family and outside my family, really. Um, So yeah, it made it really easy. It was like all my heroes um, growing up were either visual artists or musicians. And um, yeah, it gave me a head start.
1: The musicians in your family, your dad... Your brother, your aunts, and also was your was did you have an uncle who's a musician?
0: Yeah, I did. Yep. Yeah, a lot of musicians in the family.
1: How is music treated in your home? Like, was it social and fun? Was it serious? Um, you know, uh,
0: I was mostly social and fun. I'd say, you know, my parents always played all their records when they had parties and stuff like that. That's something I'll, I'll always remember is them listening to records when they had parties and they played music at parties. You know, it was very much like a social thing, generally speaking. Yeah, it was it was sort of the folk music approach.
1: Hmm. Was it something that you realized was special about your family or like did you just think everybody did that?
0: I didn't think it was special at all at the time. Um, you know, it was it was weird. looking back on it I now realize that it that it was. I mean, like I my my dad's family on his side, they were all sort of visual artists in sort of like the graphic design world, um and advertising world and you know and then some of them my great aunt was a really awesome photographer and Yeah, you know, it was just normal. It seemed normal to me. And uh, later I realized like, oh, wow, that was, you know, it was kind of really lucky.
1: So you maybe, maybe your experience as a drummer, you were too young to like have that really make an impression on you. But I'm wondering how you think that foundation of rhythm has helped your musicianship because you did start out as a drummer or maybe didn't help at all and what your connection to rhythm is in playing music?
0: Yeah, I think it helped a lot. It was um for for some reason I never figured out why my dad wanted me to play the drums. And so I started, yeah, I started playing drums and doing like sort of rhythmic stuff pretty early. And I think it was great. It's like a really good foundation for everything musical and I think it affected, you know, it affected my playing. Um, a hundred percent that, I mean, that's the thing is most, most of my life, I've been a rhythm guitar player and, uh, mm. I don't think rhythm guitar players really get the credit they deserve, you know? Um, because it's, uh, it's actually something you can do well, you know what I mean? I think people think of playing rhythm as like, they're not playing lead, but, mm. um, some of my favorite music is like, you know, Django Reinhardt and swing bass music. And that music is so, so rhythmic, you know?
1: Totally. Can you explain the importance of the, a rhythm guitar player that like people might not understand?
0: Well, I mean for me, especially in the kind of style that we did and and the style um, like like Django Reinhardt and a lot of the swing stuff early swing stuff is that there was no drums so really the the drums are created between the bass and the rhythm guitar uh, and the emphasis of the of the rhythm guitar and the bass. so it's sort of like it is your rhythm section when you play. Uh, swing and you know early jazz a lot of early jazz stuff too no no drums or um, of course you know the more traditional folk stuff or uh, jug band music usually didn't have drums too so it really is um like a closed system you know it really is the 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 bass and the drums.
1: I read that your dad gave you your first guitar when you were 12 years old like a Fifty dollar Mexican guitar with nylon strings. This is a funny quote. You said it was a guitar for someone who might not stick with the guitar. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, yeah, I don't. I don't blame my dad for that though, because you never know when what kids are gonna stick with. You know, um, totally. I would. I would buy my kid a, a, the exact same guitar. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, you never know. You don't want to spend too much. I might like, you know, smash it against the wall accidentally or something. Uh, but yeah, m- my dad was my first teacher.
1: What was it like when he first gave you that guitar and started teaching you and giving you lessons? Like how did it make you feel about your dad and how did playing the guitar change your connection to him?
0: Well, it was just kind of a natural extension of things. I felt like, you know, I wanted to be like my dad. Everybody wants to be like their dad when they're that age and and you know, my dad played guitar. So it was like um it seemed totally natural. You know, it was like, my dad's going to show me how to play guitar. You know, my brother plays the guitar. Everybody plays the guitar. It's just the thing to do.
1: (laughs) Right. So it sounds like it was kind of expected.
0: Well, I think that my family, yeah, you know, I mean, it was definitely something that people did in my family. I think if I hadn't taken to it, you know, they would have just given it up. But, um, You know, even my sisters too, you know, they, they both can, you know, sing on my dad's side. My sisters can sing and and play guitar and, you know, it was sort of natural. Yeah. Like everybody did, everybody did it. It didn't seem Mm -hmm. at all. um, It didn't seem at all strange because, you know, my brother used to come home from college and he would play music with my dad and, you know, he'd bring his friends and they'd play music with my dad. My dad would have his friends over and they'd play music together. It was just a social thing.
1: So that brings me to this topic you uh, talked about the type of music that your friends were listening to versus what you were listening to. You said most of my friends were into Metallica and Megadeth and stuff like that, and I was really into older blues music like slide guitar and blues. I was definitely the dork of the group. Um, and you were exposed, thanks to your family, to old-time American music, blues, songwriters, which like you said, was different than other kids. And you've said that your friends were like into metal and not into the music that you liked. How do you think that affected your ability to find common ground with your friends? And like, how did you feel about being weird like that?
0: Well, I mean, I've kind of, uh, you know, been that way my whole life. I mean, you know, I I don't know exactly why, but uh, you know, I think even when I was a young kid, I was sort of like didn't really fit in too well with the group and so that was nothing new. I guess, you know, my musical taste was just another reason why. <laughs> but you know, I didn't like play sports, I wasn't like real social. You know what I mean? It just kind of like what the great thing about it though was that it it um it kind of allowed me to find other people like me. Hmm. You know, it was great because, I mean, as I got to be older and I got to be a teenager and I sort of met other musicians and, you know, I got to find people who were were sort of into the same kind of music than me. Or maybe they were into another style of music that was just as weird and, you know, sort of made them feel like nobody. They didn't know anybody. (laughs) So it was a a good tool eventually. But yeah, during those days, no, definitely not very cool. Yeah, my my friends were actually into, um, you know, this is like middle school days. My friends were into... They were definitely into all metal and um, they would like do these, you know, like exercises to like strengthen their fingers so they could like, you know, play lead faster. That was kind of the <laughs> that's what people were doing at, the, at that time.
1: <laughs> there was one kid that you seem to really connect with that you're still friends with Cooper McBean. Yeah, you ended up you ended up being together in the band Devil Makes Three with. What was your early friendship like with Cooper and what did it mean to, to you to find a friend like him?
0: Well, it was great. Cause I mean, we, we both, um, shared this sort of love of old music and, uh, that's, that's really kind of what we bonded on. And, um, we, yeah, we had a great time. I mean, we played music together even before, way before we started the band, we grew up in the same area, um, yeah, I mean, you know, Cooper liked Roger Miller and um, Jug Band music and Doc Watson and all these things that, you know, obviously weren't wildly popular with kids our age at that time. Um, so that was great, you know, we, we played music together and it was the basis for a lot of my friendships at the time, you know, people who were interested in, yeah, old blues, old time, like early rock and roll music, It was it was sort of the basis of a lot of my friendships. And me and Cooper you know, had that in common. And, you know, we eventually ended up in the band together probably because of that.
1: You're a writer who steers towards difficult and sorrowful subjects in your writing, but you seem like a pretty perfectly happy person, which I can only imagine is because you're able to process hardships through writing. Can you talk about how you discovered the expression of art as a way to channel your feelings?
0: Yeah. I mean, that's exactly what it is for me. You know, that's exactly what it is. It's a way for me to feel uh, okay about things I don't feel okay about at all. And I mean, also, I mean, my hope is that it does the same thing for people who listen to it, you know, that they feel, it makes them feel better, even though it might make them feel sad. I mean, I know a lot of the a lot of the stuff I write about can be really depressing, but somehow it makes me feel better. And I think that, I think a big part of that too, is like growing up, really getting into listening to blues music and uh, like um, and country music as well. There's so many sad songs and hard luck songs and it's just like this reoccurring theme and I think I just adopted that from an early age because it always made me feel so much better it's exactly what it is for me it's just a way to yeah I would never describe myself as a really happy person but I think that it (laughs) allows me to be uh, to be functional (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah which is which is good right
1: Yeah. What was it like for you when you first started writing and kind of like came to the realization that that it helped?
0: Well, I mean, when I first started doing it, I think that was the only reason why I did it. Um, You know what I mean? I there was no audience. And, you know, I was very young and I started writing, you know, my own songs, I guess you'd call them (laughs) really young. Um, And it was probably for that reason, just solely for that reason, no other reason. and you know eventually i started playing out and and i would play those songs which were you know just really confessional songs i suppose and uh you know i started playing really young started playing like open mics and stuff like that and it was a terrifying experience i'm so glad i got it out of the way early
1: yeah yeah you started playing open mics when you were 15 years old
0: yeah right around there
1: which you said is was terrifying Um, and you like had to work it out of your system. Is there anything that you recognize in your performance now that you've carried with you from those open mics? Um,
0: maybe a small amount of fear, Mm. (laughs) but not much more. I mean, Mm -hmm. at that time I was so terrified to get in front of people. It was just almost like, um, it was like a, like, I think I, I remember hearing this Arlo Guthrie interview that he described it as like a monster movie, like a horror movie. Like to go on stage, like the time just slows down, you know. But I got over it fairly quickly and really started to enjoy it, and which was great because I mean, you know, by the time I was like seventeen or eighteen, I, I felt a lot more comfortable. And yeah, I really, really enjoyed it. But I mean, I guess, I mean, back then, I think you know, I was trying to, I was just trying to to play my songs and and to anybody who would listen and i mean you know it's it's really exactly the same thing that i'm doing now it's just a bigger audience that's all
1: how did your interest in punk music start um actually it
0: started uh, around the same time that i met cooper i was probably you know a freshman in high school and i met um i met a, a girl who was a mutual friend of me, uh, Cooper and I, and she gave, she gave us punk records. We'd never heard anything like that before. I remember I, I played her like a reggae record, and she was like, "This is too slow." <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, "What do you mean it's too slow?" Like, this is what reggae sounds like." And she was like, "No, it doesn't." And then she played me sort of the punk groups that are you know that were inspired by reggae, which was a ton of punk groups in England. Mm. And, uh, and you know, it was like triple time, basically like ska. And I, I guess I just sort of fell in love with it. And it was a way also too, I felt like to sort of differentiate myself from my family.
1: Mm. Oh, that's so interesting. Um, Can you talk a little bit more about that?
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, around here, I mean, you know, growing up in New England, like there wasn't much of a punk scene uh, where I, where I lived. There certainly was ones in, you know, bigger cities like Boston and New York and, you know, maybe Massachusetts as well, some places in New Hampshire, but not where I lived. So it was something that was totally foreign. And the music, too, really appealed to me because it was so... Um, I don't know. It was actually had, some strangely, some things in common with the music I already listened to. It was a lot of political stuff, which, of course, you find in folk music, and a lot of hard luck as well. And it was really angry, which also appealed to me, you know, I think especially at that age, you know, I was was so young. And uh, yeah, and it allowed me at the time to like form a a clique, you know, in my in my school and with my friends and, you know, sort of feel like you belonged, Mm. which was really important at that time.
1: You would often make the trip to Boston um, to see punk shows, what were those trips like and how did those experiences help shape your performance aspirations?
0: Wow, that's a really good question. I mean, those shows were nothing like what what we do or what we ended up doing. I mean, they were they were usually um I don't know if bunk shows like are still like this, but at the time, you know, uh there, there was like 17 bands, you know, and it would cost $5. <laughs> So every band would play for like 15 minutes obviously because you can't have them play for longer than that which is great cuz that's like the average length of a punk record anyway <laughs> you know like it's like 15 minutes i mean unless it's a full length which usually i wasn't listening to those at that time Yeah i mean i think the one thing that i really took from it i mean we had a we had a great time i mean it was always like an adventure obviously to go to boston and to go see a show and you know see all these bands and hang out all day and it was it was really fun. I guess, you know, looking back on it, it was kind of like a miniature <laughs> low-rent music festival. Um, we went to we went to a lot of them. And it was great. You know, you'd always see bands you'd never heard of before because, I mean, that was the way the DIY scene was. You know, you'd see bands you'd never heard of. You'd see bands that no one had ever heard of. It was, like, really um, open mm-hmm. to anybody who wanted to participate. So there'd be bands that were really popular and there'd be bands that were, like, basically teenagers. It was really... A, a cool it was a cool scene but I mean I think the thing I tried to take from it was there was so much energy in the crowd that was like such a big thing for for punk shows was the energy of the crowd you know it was really like a participation thing that was happening between the band and the crowd
1: how is that like a participation thing
0: well I mean you know the the crowd was really involved in the show they didn't just stand there and stare you know, it was like if they really liked the band, like it would be like, you know, explosive and violent. And it was it felt great. You know, it was like really cathartic and uh, it felt, yeah, it felt really, really important. And I mean, you know, it wasn't like when you go to see a concert and everybody sits there and stares at the band like that was not what was happening. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> they were listening, but sort of it was almost like the crowd was as important as the band was um and it really made an impression on me. Wow. And that was something that I tried to bring into our shows is to be like, look, you know, like if you're at the show, like we want you to have we want you to have a great time. We want you to feel like, you know, we want it to feel like that 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 exchange of energy that we got when we were so young.
1: And not to like completely fast forward, but um after high school, you moved around a bit to Nashville, Olympia, Eventually, you landed in Santa Cruz, California, where you you were there with Cooper, and you got together with another Vermont person, Lucia Torino. Lucia. Lucia yeah. Torino. Yeah. And, Lucia
0: Torino. Yeah. Yeah. She was from our town.
1: Oh, cool. And you all started playing together as a Devil Makes Three. And I found this like really interesting quote from you. We all grew up in the same very small and rural area of Southern Vermont and migrated West like large, stupid, drunken birds in our early 20s, which is very funny.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's very, very, very true. Lucia went out to go to college. She was the only one who had some sort of purpose. But I I mean, she didn't didn't really. uh, I think it was just a tricky way to get to California, to be honest with you.
1: I wanted to know more about the... Drunken birds part. Um, You often write about drugs and alcohol, sometimes metaphorically. But what has been your journey with alcohol or other numbing substances, and what have you learned from your experiences?
0: Well, I mean, you know, I guess I've had. I think I've had all the experiences with drugs and alcohol that I need to have. I don't. Mm -hmm. I don't feel like. I don't feel like I'm going to be one of those people who says like, if only I'd tried insert thing here I don't really I don't feel that way at all um not that I've done everything but I've done everything that I need to do and um yeah so I mean I think you know again it's it's like a theme in in my writing for sure and it's a theme in in a lot of the writing that I that I love as well I think it's like you know, when you can't deal with something, a lot of times that's what you turn to because it helps. I mean, it really does help. It helps and it can also hurt, mm. you know. I mean, it's like a way to get through things and it's also a way to not make it to the other side of things, which, you know, sadly, I've had some friends, you know, die that way, which is, um, I mean, it's it's just something that can happen, you know, and and I think that in a certain time in my life, I... Felt like I was more on that road that they were on as well. Maybe we were on it together. And I feel really lucky that I sort of got off, you know.
1: How did you get um, off that road?
0: Well, I mean, I, you know, I guess I just decided that I wanted to live more than I wanted to die. It's a weird thing to say out loud. But I, I think that a lot of times when you're, uh, you know, a drug addict or an alcoholic or whatever it might be, you, there's some part of you that does want to die. Um, and it's like, you know, you, you, you're sort of like walking the line of like being alive and dying. You know, you're sort of like getting, you know, some of my friends have just gotten closer and closer to the death side and then they just never come back. And I think it was like a, you know uh, a conscious decision to just realize that no I don't I you know I'm not as interested in dying as I am in living I think living is way more interesting than dying you know and we all have to die too I think I also got it in my head that you know it's like death is something that we all have to do there's no choice and I would much rather not do it of my own accord.
1: So you were able to tour in Devil Makes Three and make enough to quit your day job four years after the band started, but weren't making a ton of money. How was that like for you to not have stable income? And as I've interested also, like as you've become like, quote, not broke um, or have like a more stable income, are there any like old characteristics that you notice that have remained from the days you were scraping by?
0: Oh yeah. I mean, I think they, I mean, the thing that that's funny about it for me is, uh, I mean, I've never really, other than music, I've never really had a stable source of income. I mean, I, I worked a lot of jobs and I guess it was stable in a sense, but it was never like a career, you know? Um, I never had any sort of other work that I really did that was, that was gonna be, you know, um, was, you know, there was no, uh, no uh, opportunity for promotion in
1: those jobs. <laughs> like what kind of, what kind of jobs? Uh,
0: mostly service jobs, um, bars, restaurants. Uh, I also did, um, me and Lucia worked on a farm for a while. We worked on a horse farm. That was actually a really fun job. What did you do on the horse um, farm? Uh, Lucia worked with the horses and I did landscaping. And I also did repairs like they had quite a few horses. It was, um, It was a, like a farm where they trained and they also bred horses. So the horses would, were always destroying everything. A huge part of our job was fixing everything that they destroyed. (laughs) And, uh, Lucia would do a little bit of riding and training. And our our friend, um, our friend Shauna was the main trainer at the, at the farm at that time. It was a, it was a really fun job, but you know, I did landscaping, I did gardening, I did uh, restaurant work. I did, yeah, I worked at cafes, um, I didn't, you know, I, I never really had like a, I worked at a farm in Olympia, Washington too. When I was in Nashville, I did more landscaping stuff. You know, I was just sort of, it was just sort of whatever I could like find. Jobs, and so yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. And I mean, I also never really wanted to not be able to do what I wanted to do in terms of music or travel or whatever. So I never really settled into anything. And, um, I think that, you know, that I never really let that go honestly. I mean, I've never really, even, even if, as you know, as we started to get, when we started to make enough money to not work, I was like amazed. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, didn't, I didn't know how long it would last for, but you know, we were, we were not really, we certainly weren't getting rich. You know, we were just paying our bills and we did that for a long time. And, you know, I, I think I was always just really thankful that it had happened at all. And I, I always tried. And I think, you know, most of us have to just sort of not start to think that you're making more money, even though you are. I don't know. It's you never know how long things will last.
1: Hmm. So the objective of a Devil Makes Three live show is to like have fun, which I think seems like it's stemmed a lot out of um, going to punk shows and wanting to have fun when you're on stage, which is a good idea. Um, what's it like for you when you're not? feeling fun but you have to play and exert all this energy i mean that's
0: the difficult thing about touring and i mean it's sort of the thing that i i i I wish i could impress upon people but i don't think i ever will be able to because you have to you have to do it maybe to understand it but like you know it's like musicians and performers and comedians and it's like they're not allowed to have a bad day You know, and I think the thing that people don't realize is that musicians and performers and artists, like, they do it every day. Every day. So, like, sometimes it's not going to be that great, but like, that's because they're humans. (laughs) Yeah. And people go see a show sometimes and they're like, oh, I saw so and so and they were terrible. Now they're terrible from then till the end of time it's like you know give them a break man i mean everybody obviously should strive to do their best and i think almost everybody out there is you know but i mean you know every once in a while you're gonna have an off night it just happens it's you know if you you didn't you'd be a robot you know totally um and i think yeah i mean i think that's the tough thing about touring and one of the things i think about a lot which i think is sort of unfortunate is like the way the music's in business has changed. I mean I'm sure you know as well as anybody. It's changed for it's changed for everyone who's who's involved in it. But really for me the focus has gone a hundred percent to live. There's really nothing else. It's almost like music is free and then people go to shows sometimes. And that's it, you know? Um, and I think some, some people who are music fans have sort of like consciousness about like, well, maybe we should try and buy something from the band. Our fans definitely do. They've been like incredibly supportive in that way, but it's shifted to the point where like bands really, if they're not playing at like, you know, whatever top radio, uh, level, like they're touring a lot and they have to tour a lot and there's no other choice to make ends meet.
1: Hmm.
0: You know, And I think that there was a time when they would also get paid for making records, <laughs> but that doesn't happen anymore.
1: And thinking about um, a theme that you covered for Devil Makes Three uh, about being a stranger, you've written about being a musician in that everywhere you go, you don't know anyone. The experience of being a musician is spending a lot of time not knowing anybody everywhere you go. How do you feel about that? And like, have your feelings about being a stranger evolved over time? How does it make you treat people that you don't know differently?
0: Well, I mean, I think, uh, you know, initially I was really drawn to it and I really liked it. And I think there's a part of me that still does. You know, it's, it's sort of a nice feeling. I don't think it's for everybody, but it's a nice feeling to always be, to always be the, just not knowing anybody, to always be. You know, uh, a a new person and in a new place. Yeah, I think I was really attracted to it, and it it, it is a, a very strange life. <laughs> it's a strange way to spend your life for sure, and I think any musician knows that. You know, every yeah, every single time you go somewhere, you're like you're. It's like you're like invisible almost, and you don't have community. But luckily, like over the years through the amount of touring that we've done, I mean, I now have you know sort of musical community that's everywhere. Um, the only drag about that is when you come home, you basically don't know anybody anymore. But <laughs> I, I know so many people from my time traveling and so many musicians and so many artists that a lot of times when I go places, I do know people because I've been there so many times. Um, so I guess that's sort of evolved for me over time.
1: You've also addressed the opioid problem in America in interviews and in songs. You say the pharmaceutical companies have us convinced that being unhappy is a personal problem. I don't think drugging that feeling away is a solution. Would you mind talking about that a little bit more on um, your experience with the crisis and thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, it's actually a strange, strangely a uh, uh, a big problem in in Vermont and in New England in general. It's like uh, you know, even the rural in the rural areas too, which is. Really strange. Like, it seems strange that you'd have a lot of drug addiction in a place where where it's largely rural, and but there's also a lot of poverty, and so there you have it. Yeah, I mean, I think that there is sort of like I think it's a, it's a big problem that no one really wants to talk about. I mean, um you know, when I when I first went to Santa Cruz, I, you know, I had friends who you know had their boyfriends or or close friends die of you know addiction to opioids and and heroin and stuff like that and a lot of them became addicted in the hospital um because there's really no there's really no program for for taking you off like if you get in a really bad car accident and you go in of course they give you these drugs which they should you know if you're in an amazing amount of pain but then when you leave they don't help you to get off those drugs and it leads to street addiction. And I mean, also like the overprescription of those drugs leads to street addiction too. And I, I kind of, like my feeling is that, you know, a huge part of the opioid problem in the United States has been caused by the pharmaceutical industry. And I don't, I don't know why they don't have to be responsible for it. I, I think, you know, in the United States, they just blame the addict. And when you can trace back that, you know, a lot of these people became addicted, not from the streets, but from, you know, from large corporations and doctors, I think that there should be some sort of, you know, there should be some sort of recourse for those people and their families, you know. I it's not it's not fair at all. And also I mean it's it has a really long history in the United States too. I mean I think uh, it's really strange the way that it gets painted, but I mean, you know, heroin itself, the name of the drug is is a brand name. Heroin was created by the Bayer Aspirin company uh oh, as wow, a solution. Yeah, it was a solution for addiction to morphine in the same way that methadone is a solution to heroin and oxycontin is a better version of morphine do you know what i mean these drugs are not yeah you can't make this stuff at home
1: (laughs) yeah drug your drugs
0: (laughs) yeah i mean you know there's
1: in the drug lab
0: there's a lot more to it than i think people know and there's a lot more to it to how drugs end up on the street too and how addicts end up on the street and um yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's a complicated problem. And I think that it's um, especially, I mean, you've seen like the opioid crisis like explode in the United States. And, and, you know, heroin has been here for a long time. I think that a huge part of that is pharmaceutical companies. And basically they've been given a pass to prescribe as much as they want. And a lot of people are getting very rich.
1: talk about brown bird
0: oh yeah please
1: and uh david lamb morgan eve swain of brown bird Is she, did she start playing with devil makes three she
0: did yeah and um you know lucia has decided to take some time off the road and um you know it's been a it was a pretty like hard thing for all of us because you know she's she's been in the band so long and she's a founding member of the band it's like really you know been a tough thing but actually it was lucia's idea that uh morgan eve step in and play bass and uh i for some reason that never even crossed my mind i think it's because i thought that morgan eve you know she has another band called the huntress and holder of hands and i thought well she's really busy with that and i didn't even think to ask her but um mm. but yeah she's been she's played with us on the last couple of tours we went on and uh it, it's been great i mean she's really like part of the family
1: it sounds like you devil makes three and brown bird uh we're pretty good friends um david lamb died in 2014, which is so devastating. Um, can you talk about what their music and the friendship of that band meant to you? And in thinking about that, what it means to have Morgan Eve play with your band?
0: Yeah, I mean, it was really great when we met. Um, when I when I first moved back to Vermont from uh, California, I started to go to Rhode Island um, and we started to play more in Rhode Island, and um, which is where uh, Morgan Eve and Dave were living. And uh, I just got introduced to a bunch of bands down there. And I really liked the music scene that they were part of. And Morgan, even Dave, like I just loved their band. Like when we found their band, we just toured with them. We toured with them so much we sort of had to stop. (laughs) It was like, this is boring. You know, like we can't just keep playing with Brown Bird over and over. (laughs) We eventually have to have another band on the road with us, you know. But yeah, we really just, we loved their music. I loved, you know, the combination of the way they, they sang together and um, the fact that they were a duo. It was like really stripped down and simple. And Dave was a great songwriter too and a great guy. I mean, we, we really, it was, a, it was a really like lucky friendship, you know, musically and otherwise. And Morgan Eve would play with us when we were in those, when she would come out and, and sit in with us when we were on those tours. And sometimes Dave did too. <laughs> Um, so it was kind of like, um, it was sort of like one big band in a way. Hmm.
1: So it was a very natural bit.
0: Mm-hmm, definitely.
1: Yeah. I've heard you talk about the audiences you play for in Europe, like they're attentive and quiet and polite, which is like way different than your US shows. Can you talk about like coming to that realization at first and how you're able to maintain connection to a quiet crowd? Well,
0: I mean, it's actually something I like to do. Um, you know, like our audience in the United States is obviously not that way, but <laughs> but uh but I really do enjoy it. Um it's it's very different though. Yeah, like uh I guess the audience that we've had that's closest to our audience in the United States is probably in Scotland or in uh the Netherlands. They're like the more rowdy uh, but normally it's very quiet. It's sort of more like a, a folk music approach, um, really attentive. So you have
1: to, you rearrange your setup for European shows?
0: Not at all. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, we don't at all. We do exactly what we feel like doing. And, you know, I mean, and they, send, they tend to really like it as well. You can talk more, which is fun. You know, people are listening. Uh, and so you can sort of talk more in between songs and you can relax a little bit more, you know what I mean? Which is, which is really nice. Um, but yeah, it's a very different, it's a very different show.
1: What was it like when you guys first realized like, oh, this is like, I I can imagine it being like very jarring when you first realized that the crowd was going to be different.
0: Well, it was kind of like when we first started out, because when we first started out, we played to a lot of crowds like that, just sort of, you know, being in the folk music scene, there was a lot of gigs like that, and we and we got them, you know, so we played to a lot of seated audiences, and a lot of um people who were totally quiet, and Um, we sort of, you know, slowly worked away from that on purpose. Like we just sort of Mm. stopped taking those shows and we played a lot of shows with punk bands and stuff like that. And we, we sort of tried to do our best to change the audience. But, um, yeah, it was kind of like going back to when we first started and when we first started, we played a lot of gigs like that. It was, that was pretty normal.
1: (laughs) Mm. Your solo work is actually more quiet than Devil Makes Three, um, And we were just talking about that's how you first started. That's how the band first started to play. Um, But can you talk about why you harness a calmer energy with your solo material and what you like about playing quieter and calmer?
0: Well, I think it's just way more uh, personal. You know, I don't, when I'm writing those songs, I don't like do a lot of character writing or anything like that. You know, it's more just like... Uh, personal writing and I, I just sort of do it for myself and 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 uh and I think in a sense, it's just sort of more a a way to deal with things in my life <laughs> um whereas writing for the band is way more about i don't know I guess it's way more about the combination of me and Cooper and Lucia and the different energy in the band and the different things that that you know everybody brings it's it's more of like um it's like a it's like a machine, you know what I mean that i that I ride in. It's not so much like exactly um my vision. it's just you know it's it's like all of ours together.
1: Your latest album, Harmony Ascension Division, features songs about friends from your early teens and twenties, and so you're not only are you writing about those people, but you're also playing the same way that you were playing in your early teens and twenties. How does playing in this low-key style connect you to your younger stel- self and how do you feel about that person?
0: Well, I mean, I think I feel kind of sad about the whole thing to be honest with you, which is which is definitely the theme of the of the of the record. But playing in that style uh has been really fun. It's uh it's something I don't do very much. You know, playing by myself is something that I that I actually am truly afraid of. Um, Like I get, I actually will get stage fright and I haven't, Mm. I haven't had that in (laughs) years, you know, it just usually doesn't happen to me. Um, So that's been really, that part of it's really fun to kind of, uh, you know, play, to play uh, in the style that I don't usually play in, to play by myself, to have like the element of fear. Um it's all that that part of it's really great. I think the subject matter is is, you know, largely kind of sad. It's like a, a lot about people that I've lost. And um you know, that's that can be that can be difficult to write about. But I mean, you know, the the act of doing it does make me feel a lot better. <laughs>
1: has been embraced by an interesting crowd of people and I was wondering if you could talk about what that connection with this particular world has been like for you, for the band and I'm talking about the jam band world.
0: Oh, the jam band world. God. Yeah. Um, it's a funny, it's always been a really funny thing for me. I was trying to figure out what group of people you mean. I was like, do you mean Grateful <laughs> Dead people? Do you mean bikers? Do you mean uh, <laughs> kids who do acid? I don't know. Who is it? <laughs> um, but Just trying yeah. to leave you in suspense. Yeah, the, the jam band world um, has be, always been a really funny one for me because really from the from from like you know the depths of my heart, I must admit, we do not jam at all. <laughs> there is no jamming that happens in our band, and there never has been like we've we always sort of took a page out of like early country and and rock and roll songwriting it like it's it's like less than three minutes long, and it goes like this, you know we never ever jam
1: but i've I've just noticed that there are some acts that like don't. Play jam band music, but are embraced by that world.
0: Yeah, and, it, and we are one of those bands. And I got to say that to, to the jam band people, all the jam band people out there, some of the funnest people to play to I've ever played to in my life. Like, oh,
1: I can imagine. Yeah,
0: jam band, people who are in the jam band scene, like they go to a show, they are going to have fun. Like, if you are having a bad show, you can look out at how much fun they're having, and you will have a better show. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, they're not, they're not like a, you know, a crowd, like the whole, the whole Grateful Dead thing. And like, they, they are there to have fun. They will have fun. And... It's like, it, it can be really inspiring. I've had a lot of fun playing to that crowd for sure. And, mm. you know, so I don't really understand it because like I said, like, you know, the bands that I think are the most popular in that scene are like completely experimental, improvised, um, you know, 40-minute songs. Like, of course, The Dead or the, or the Big Band to, you know, to start it all out. And we've never done that. Not I, I. We haven't. We didn't even like have like a time when we experimented with it. Like not even close. But I will say that the fan base has been really fun to play to, and some of my favorite music festivals that we've played have been to that audience.
1: Did you play a couple of shows with like the string cheese incident or something, and then it no, just
0: we we played. No, I mean to be honest with you, like we played a festival that the string cheese incident played uh, like for the first time, like. Six years ago, we have never, ever done that. Like we, and then we wasn't even like, they were like headlining the festival. There was probably like, you know, 50 bands. I mean, it was, there was all different genres of music.
1: Uh, Well, what a blessing to be embraced. I
0: have no idea how it happened. I mean, (laughs) I think that my, my suspicion is that it has a lot to do with when we started out, there was sort of a progressive like folk and bluegrass scene in California at the time. And we we really didn't consider ourselves to be part of it because we didn't think that's what we were doing. But most of the bands that were popular at the time, that is what they were doing. And there's a lot of bands now that are, you know, loosely in the same scene as us and, and they're definitely doing that. You know. You know, they don't even know what song they're gonna play until somebody calls it out is a big part of like the sort of I guess you'd call it like jammy or progressive bluegrass scene.
1: I just it just occurred to me that like there might be some people listening who don't know what it means to have a jam band crowd. Can you can you briefly explain that? I
0: mean, I could not describe a <laughs> jam band crowd if I was paid to. I think that it's so many different people. I mean, so many different kinds of people that go to those shows. I mean, it goes all the way back to the Grateful Dead. And of course, there's fish. And then there's a whole other scene of people Um I think one it's thing it's
1: like I, a lot of a lot of cargo shorts.
0: Yeah, a lot of cargo shorts, a lot of long hair. I mean, I think you could loosely describe these people as hippies.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: um, and you know, they they also I'd say the thing that they have that makes them like jam band fans though is that they will like follow a band. They'll follow them like across the country, the whole. They'll fly to see a concert. They'll, you know, they'll spend all the money that they have in the bank to get to see their favorite band. I mean, they're like mm-hmm. fanatics, really.
1: Love it. Probably a lot of good pot.
0: Oh, yeah. And I'm, I'm sure good acid, too.
1: <laughs> all right, Pete, we're going to do this thing. It's called the lightning round. Okay. You into it?
0: Sure. I mean, I don't know what it is, but I'm into it.
1: You don't need to know what it is to be into it. Mm-hmm. Okay, bunch of questions coming your way. Here we go. First song you learned on the guitar?
0: Uh, the first song I learned on the guitar was actually written by my dad. Aww. Um, And I don't really know what he called it, actually. It was, it was a really beautiful song, though, and I recorded it on, like, the first solo album that I put out. I think I called it
1: Carpenter. Batman or Superman?
0: Uh, I would go Batman
1: all the way. What is your karaoke song?
0: um i do not sing karaoke i never have in my entire life but i really enjoy watching other people do it
1: if what if what uh what would it be if you were to sing
0: um i don't know that's a really good question i don't know it's never crossed my mind i think if i had to say right now i would probably want to sing some like classic country song
1: that would be cool yeah favorite radio station as a kid
0: oh wow as a kid well as a kid I don't really know what it was but I really loved the sort of oldies uh station that we had around here in in uh in New England but um after that I loved the classic rock station which in when I was a kid was called oh god wow you're really making me think it's like (laughs) <laughs> uh W A A F that was it. Oh yeah. Yeah, W A A F it was like 107.3. Exactly. Oh my god, that was I listened to that all the
1: time. That was the station that originally had Opie and Anthony on.
0: Yeah, right. Yeah, that was that was, that was like that was that was our station, you know. Like that was that oh was that was the rock and roll station.
1: Okay, dogs or cats?
0: Um I would say initially cats. But If I could spend more time at home, I would love to have a dog.
1: Nice. What is your coffee order?
0: Mm, I would just get black coffee.
1: Favorite US city? Uh,
0: I would probably say New Orleans.
1: First album you bought with your own money?
0: Oh, wow. That's a really good question. I don't know what the first one I bought was, but the one that I'll never forget was when I was uh, about 12 or 13, my brother bought me the um, complete Chess Records recordings. Oh,
1: sweet. Mm -hmm. Do you remember your first concert?
0: Um, Well, my first concerts were probably definitely my family. My Aunt Damaris, my brother when he was in Berklee College of Music in Boston. Um, you know my family members were definitely my first concerts the first ones I went to outside of the house uh, I would assume probably bad local cover bands
1: (laughs) (laughs) what's the last book you read
0: wow that's a good question Uh, the last book I read the last book I finished was um, oh, I read The Meditations of Marcus Aurelius Hmm.
1: Dream Collaboration
0: Oh, dream collaboration. Wow. Um, sat, is, it, is it like, is it, is it can they be dead? Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, if they were dead, I would love to record at Sun Records back in those days. And I would also really love to record at Chess Records. And I would love to um, work with or, or song songwrite with or something like that with uh, Willie Dixon.
1: Nice. Yeah. Flying or invisibility?
0: Uh, Flying.
1: Star Trek or Star Wars?
0: Oh, man, I would go both. I, I, I can't choose between. I, if I have to choose, I guess I would choose... I guess I'd choose Star Wars.
1: Lord of the Rings or Narnia? Uh,
0: Lord of the Rings. I read those books when I was a kid.
1: Where is the most beautiful place you've ever visited?
0: Wow, that's really a tough one. I've been to a lot of places that were really beautiful and I feel very lucky about it Uh, that's a really tough one like what
1: popped into your head?
0: well when we first one of the tours we went on it was like our second tour in Europe we did play I, I can't tell you where we were but we played a music festival very very small like local music festival in Italy and it was called Just Like Heaven and it was like you went up this insanely windy switchback road and seriously i thought our tour manager was going to quit cuz he was like i thought i was going to die on that road <laughs> and we we got to the very very top of this mountain and we could see all the way down like into like onto where we had come from the town and the ocean in the distance and um that's where we played it was absolutely gorgeous um it was near i guess fairly near levanto i'd have to ask exactly where it was but that was an amazing amazing experience the only thing that backfired about it is that when you put a music festival on the very very top of a remote mountain it's kind of hard for people to get there so there's that
1: (laughs) totally oh my god (laughs) all right that's it that's the lightning round
0: all right cool
1: We're at the end of our interview. Thank you so much, Pete. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you.
0: Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. And uh, it was great.
1: Basic Folk is produced by Laura McCarthy and Adam Corey. This week, Adam took the producer reins. Lindsay Myers is our business manager. Alex Stanton of the band Townspeople does our music. Basic Folk is proud to be on the American Songwriters Podcast Network. You can learn more about Basic Folk. Check out some show notes. Listen to all of the episodes. There are over 70 episodes of Basic Folk available at my website, cindyhouse.net. You can also hear Basic Folk wherever you get podcasts. And if you liked what you heard, tell a friend, tell your mom, tell your cousin, tell your music teacher, tell anyone. Uh, You can review on iTunes. That's very helpful. You can subscribe um, and you can join the Basic Folk Basics Facebook page if you use Facebook, which some of you may not. And I totally respect that. Okay, we will talk to you next time. Bye.